You're listening to the Writers Forum. I am your host, Mike Tusa, and today we have the pleasure of interviewing Robert Fiesler about his book, Tinderbox, a book focusing on the 1973 upstairs lounge fire in New Orleans. Robert is a journalist and a recipient of the Linton Fellowship in Book Writing and the Pulitzer Traveling Fellowship. And Tinderbox has been listed as a best book of the year by Kirkus Reviews, Library Journal, and Shelf Awareness. Welcome to the show, Robert. Happy to be here. Keep going. That Good. was a lovely intro. Good. All right. Well, let's jump right in. The book is, <laughs> is centered on the fire, but you've also done a marvelous job of giving us the backstories for the 31 men and one woman, woman who died and those who survived, mm-hmm. as well as placing all of this in the historical context of the status of gay rights in the country and somewhat uniquely in New Orleans. Can you take a moment for younger listeners who may not be familiar and describe the environment in New Orleans in 1973 for gay men and women and how it differed from the environment in other cities. Sure, the contextual pivot from being queer in New Orleans now and being queer in New Orleans in the 1970s is almost like um, impossible to imagine. So you would have to um, take this step uh, probably 180 degrees from your current reality to conceive of a world in which you as a queer person were illegal, uh, dangerous, considered of a criminal element, Um, something like a crack addict or even um, a kind of pedophile. You were considered the lowest of the low. So in in sort of values and belief surveys, they would... um, Homosexuality rated as um, as 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 least popular, one of the least popular things in society, as unpopular as nuclear war in that period of time. So pretty much anything uh, you did or uh, that would reveal yourself or any way, uh, any place that you inhabited, you would have to be aware of the fact that you were being actively hunted um, by by local uh, authorities, by police who were authorized to prosecute you for private bedroom behavior, they were called crimes against nature, um, who were um, authorized to, um, you know, uh, get rid of property that you owned if it was proven that you were a homosexual owning a house of ill repute, to assist landlords in your eviction from rental properties, to assist employers in your eviction from offices if it be discovered that you were queer. to uh, to basic run-of-the-mill arrests, so uh, occupying space on a sidewalk while queer was illegal, um, drinking in a bar that was known as a homosexual establishment or working in a bar that was known as a homosexual establishment, all considered illegal, um, using the mail to mail, let's say, a love letter between you which was a federal service, and God forbid you were you were sending that over state lines, and that became a federal, not just a state, but a, fe- a level of uh, additional federal crime, uh, to send those kind of things, which was considered por- pornographic or obscene material. So you were a person on the run, hiding, etc. This is just nationally. Um, in uh, uh, in 1969 or so, there had been the birth of a new movement called gay liberation um, bubbling up in various cities and then really um, becoming galvanized by an event called the Stonewall. I like to call them the riots because it, it was a riot. People like to call it an uprising, but I like to call it a riot because it was punk rock um, in New York City that really radicalized and politicized um, an entire segment of the national queer community, and that created a movement that was wanting for the overturn of these oppressive, uh, oppressive institutions and strictures nationwide. And that sort of wave had washed across the country and touched every city um, from 1969, um, except New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans had a separate 
sort of uh, system of open secrets uh, involving sexual difference and any kind of vice, really, that because um, queer life was considered a vice, um, that uh, that sort of governed queer behavior, where you could be. Um, you could have your sexual picadillos. You could be a gentleman who preferred a gentleman or a lady who preferred a lady, etc. In so much as you kept that behavior undeclared, discreet, apolitical, and private. So you would live euphemistically. You'd be a bachelor. Or you, if you were two women living together, you'd be two old spinsters who couldn't find husbands, say, or something like that. Um, the moment that you declared your queerness, though, publicly, you became vulnerable to any kind of police... Um, uh, in some cases, medical, uh, or in other cases, vigilante attack by others. So that was where, um, why most people in New Orleans knew to never quite declare or to speak the truth of their private lives publicly. Um, they would live in a way where things were casually understood as them being the fun one in the room, the dapper dresser, the dandy, etc. Um, the, the the funny guy at the office, but it wouldn't be known that this gentleman had a boyfriend, uh, that this woman had a girlfriend. I've got you. All right. Well, you take the fire and you place it in the chronology of the gay liberation movement. And in reference to Stonewall, as you mentioned, or even the Lavender Scare back in the 1950s, mm -hmm. how do you see this fire, before we turn to the more specifics of it, as being part of that movement? Sure. And what did it contribute to the movement? Sure. So you, in the 1970s, you saw early signs of the National Gay Liberation Movement attempting to establish itself in New Orleans and even achieving for a few, a few, in a few instances, early success only to be battened down, rejected, and sort of purged from the city in a kind of like a organ rejection sort of thing, that these are these outsiders bringing their crazy ideas about sexual openness here. So there had been in 1970 a certain segment of what was then called the Gay Liberation Front, which was a national gay liberation political organization that was kind of hubbed out in New York City that was in New Orleans that had protested City Hall, people forget about this, um, in response to a uh, terrible police crackdown on a gay cruising zone known as Cabrini Park um, in the French Quarter, which involved an entrapment operation where uh, queer folk would be entrapped by police and then beaten up. And uh, the Gay Liberation Front protested it, and they actually met with a representative of the mayor and the police chief and negotiated a kind of ceasefire, which is why up to 73, there had been, um, up to the time of the upstairs lounge, no uh, no queer bar raids, no massive uh, police entrapment operations for about three years or so. And that was early political, an early political victory for queer life. However, after the Gay Liberation Front um, achieved this victory, it was reported nowhere. And even then, the local queer community refused to talk about it. They didn't want to acknowledge that queer political action had worked in town. And so the Gay Liberation Front folded up. Following the upstairs lounge fire, which I, we should define, was an, a notoriously unsolved arson fire that took place at a gay bar called the Upstairs Lounge in 1973 New Orleans, and it claimed 32 lives. This was the deadliest fire on record in New Orleans history and the worst mass killing of homosexuals in U.S. history until the 20 uh, in the 20th century, and then it was it wasn't a record actually it wasn't a record meant to be broken, but it wasn't a record of death that was broken until the 2016 massacre at Pulse in Orlando. Um, so this was an incredibly historically significant event, terribly deadly, uh, leading to more than two dozen deaths um, in a in a span in a fire that was uh, so terribly out of control. It, it lasted for less than twenty minutes, yet it less it resulted in all of this carnage. So it created a kind of um, awareness 
in New Orleans of the fact that first there was this fire at, at, at a bar closer to the French Quarter, which wasn't considered a good thing because this was an era when um, New Orleans was trying to attack, attract um, an increasing amount of the tourist dollar for business conventioneers, right, families, etc., who were supposed to come to New Orleans for consequence-free weekends. The notion that I, in one of these bars I was supposed to have consequence-free weekend, that I burned to death, that's just not good PR, wasn't the message they wanted, wanted to, to send out. Then to find out that this was a gay bar, like a bar that wasn't even supposed to exist uh, it, it, be, it, within this open secret scenario, to, and, that, and that the majority of the individuals had practiced this aberrant homosexuality, and then to find out that most of the people were locals was too much for, the, for New Orleans at that time to acknowledge, deal with in a mature way or a sympathetic way, et cetera. So um, there was a, there, it did attract, however, national gay attention. There was a gay political uprising that occurred in the weeks that followed where, where national gay mm -hmm. activists were haranguing um, local and statewide uh, political leaders trying to get some sort of action, some sort of meaningful statements of sympathy, some sort of sign uh, signals from the local police that they were going to take this crime seriously and prosecute it as an arson. Um, and that political movement within about, uh, let's say, about a month or so uh, was beaten down uh, by, by, by local uh, straight and queer New Orleanians who are who are preserving the status quo, the system of open secrets as it existed. Um, again, using the secret and using the not the secret, the um, using the excuse that it was you know uh, these are foreign concepts that are trying to invade and uh, descend upon our our special beloved culture. And New Orleans really didn't achieve a political consciousness until uh, 1977, 1978, when the anti-homosexual spokesperson Anita Bryant came to town and sang at the Metropolitan Auditorium, which provoked then all of the apolitical, all of the purely queer social organizations who, at, to that point, had never embraced politics to just all in one unanimous agree, agreeing rally cry to say, that woman's awful, we dislike her. We want her out of town, and they and they they uh, organized, uh, and they, and they were able to organize politically at that point. So the upstairs lounge is in between those two, it, it, uh, these these poles, right, where you have the social compact, the system of secrecy, and semi closeted life, and then that explosion of queer political action in 1977, and in, right in between them is this tragedy that the city desperately wanted to forget for years, if not decades. Well, let me get you to, if you don't mind, let me get you to read an excerpt sure. uh, from the book. And there's so many questions. So I'm going to read... Um, this is in the introduction. This is about the, the birth, how, you know, because I mentioned the upstairs lounge was not known, you know, or discussed much in New Orleans for years, if not decades. So I'm going to read you a scene from the birth of the upstairs lounge legacy, the reason that you and I are talking about it in this room today, and many more people know about this event, which was in 1995, which is the 22nd anniversary of the upstairs lounge tragedy, a gay minister by the name of Dexter Brecht at a church called the Metropolitan Community Church of New Orleans, which is a gay-friendly Christian congregation that's existed since the early 1970s and was actually deeply involved and close with the upstairs lounge crowd and devastated by the upstairs lounge fire. Well, by 1995, it still existed, and there was a minister there who had heard rumblings and grumblings about the upstairs lounge, but there'd never been kind of open recognition about this tragedy at the church, so he decided to do the radical act of preaching about the upstairs lounge fire in a sermon on the anniversary of the event. And when he did so, 
he wasn't sure if his own gay congregation was going to support him or not. So this is the event. Uh, this is the scene. Um, so this is June 25th, 1995. This is the birth of the Upstairs Lounge legacy where this brave uh, gay minister speaks up. <clears throat> there was a fire, the gay minister Dexter Breck began. It was a fire so horrific that Courtney Craighead, the church's deacon who was standing nearby, couldn't even speak about his memories of the event. It was a fire set intentionally on June 24, 1973, resulting in the death of one-third of the MCC of New Orleans congregation at that time. This fire, which had happened 22 years and one day before at a hangout called the Upstairs Lounge, remained so disturbing a memory that it never existed in the pages of American history. This tragedy, congregants knew, was in fact the only reason that the Times-Picayune had opted to send a reporter to hear their minister. Quote, We gather here this morning to remember, Dexter Breck, the gay minister, continued, remembering whether we like it or not, is part of the human condition. It is good as a way of acknowledging our grief. It was a horrific scene to relate, a fire in a busy bar on the fringe of New Orleans' famous French Quarter that was set with lighter fluid. On that evening, flames had invaded a sanctuary for blue-collar gay men. The fast-moving blaze overtook the second-floor bar with deep ties to the MCC of New Orleans' faithful, but the destruction would extend well beyond that church membership, claiming the lives of 31 men and one woman. Although it raged out of control for less than 20 minutes, the blaze left a file that shocked Carl Rabin, the Orleans Parish coroner, who would struggle to identify the bodies using jewelry and hotel room keys. Fingers and faces and bones were scorched beyond recognition. Quote, they were just piled up, the coroner said. People in a mass. One falls, then another falls. It's just a mass of death. It's sickening. Then the story went silent. After a mere blip of coverage, it fell off the front pages of newspapers and then from interior pages entirely. Local and national television channels would dedicate just a few minutes of on-the-scene coverage to the upstairs lounge, in which fire survivors were interviewed with cameras to their backs due to reporters' fear of legitimizing the gay lifestyle and victims' fear of outing themselves. Yet... In fact, the tragedy had affected nearly every segment of New Orleans' closeted gay community, estimated a month later by the local Gay People's Coalition to be from 40,000 to 100,000 of the city's then 600,000 residents. Most of the dead, educated and illiterate, young and old, white and black, including a hustler, a minister, and a dentist, perished within the fire's first 360 seconds. This fire was a holocaust, Dexter Brecht, the gay minister, intoned, perhaps not in the millions like in the 40s, but surely just as devastating to the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community. Yet, as Dexter Brecht, the gay minister, spoke 22 years later, the upstairs lounge fire remained forgotten. Thank you for reading that. You mentioned just now 
uh, a church I was not familiar with, the Metropolitan Community Church. Mm-hmm. Um, tell they just us a celebrated little, their 50th anniversary. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. I learned about it when I read the book, but, mm-hmm. and, and make sure, let us know whether they're still in existence. Sure. The Metropolitan Community, Community Church was a gay-friendly Christian ministry that actually started out of Los Angeles by a then-radical uh, minister named Troy Perry in 1968. Uh, by 1973, uh, this church, would, which people found very quickly, addressed a very real religious Christian need um, in, the, in, in the national queer community, had expanded to, I think, something close to 50 cities, and it actually had an international presence, too, in, in some countries. Um, the MCC had likewise uh, formed a local chapter, a local branch in New Orleans, uh, and it first uh, it, it first met in local apartments, which would uh, upset the building owners and the landlords and the neighbors. And, and, and there were several instances of the MCC of New Orleans Church in its early months being evicted from place to place. It was a wandering congregation. Uh, then in, at some point in 1972, the MCC of New Orleans um, took uh t- took took a kind of residency um at this ragtag bar on the fringe of the French Quarter called the Upstairs Lounge which then had a back theater space that wasn't utilized in the mornings on Sundays and that became the hub for the MCC of New Orleans, which would meet at the upstairs lounge bar. And then after services let out, people would engage in various forms of other fellowship for the rest of that Sunday. And then by 1973, the upstairs lounge um, and the MCC of New Orleans had developed a different kind of relationship, more of a brotherly fraternal thing, but they weren't, uh, the MCC church wasn't being housed in the upstairs lounge anymore. The MCC church had then grown in number and, and, um, and received enough donations to establish a, um, its own sort of congregation, its own sort of church space in a double shotgun house um, on Magazine Street, then in what would now be known as the uh, you know the Irish Channel or, or the Lower Garden District. It's one of these little border areas, and um, that is where they met in 1973, including on the Sunday of June 24th, prior to the fire. The the MCC of New Orleans Church had met for worship. Where they, um, you know, they sang what you would would be typical Christian hymns. They had communion, etc. Uh, Bill Larson, their minister, gave a sermon, and they met from about eleven p eleven a.m. to about one p.m. or so, and then church services let out. And then a lot of the uh, a lot of the members of the church that day regathered later that night at the upstairs lounge for what was then the biggest night of anyone's week, especially if you were part of the upstairs lounge regular crowd, which was the beer bus, the famous drink special. One dollar, uh, right, for, for two hours of unlimited draft beer plus a returnable 50 cent you know, deposit for the pitcher. This was New Orleans in the 70s, man. Yeah. People had fun that night. And a lot of the MC church members were having fun and enjoying that revelry too. Well, you, you alluded to this just now. The bar, the upstairs Lounge bar was more than a bar. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, as I read the book, and tell me if I'm reading too much into this, it's some because of the situation and the way you had to access it and the mm-hmm. limited access and the bars on the window, this is something of a metaphor for the community at that time. Sure. What, am I reading too much into that? Oh, in terms of the nature of closeted life, they, there was a hostile outside world, and then if and there was you know the upstairs lounge bar itself on Iberville Street had really no 
formal type of, of advertisement to establish the fact that it was a queer space. There wasn't like blinking neon lights or so any sort of titillating um, phrases like inside, you know, right, <laughs> step right. inside, please, for schlong or nothing like that. It was like it was a place where you would you would enter, um, you would walk, uh, you would enter this nondescript doorway on the side of a building, walk up this 13 steps of a winding staircase, right? And then you would have to knock on the fire door. It would be opened for you. And then you would enter an oasis chamber filled with all of your friends, right? And all of the people who alongside with you participate in this, in this semi-secret lifestyle. Um, and the upstairs lounge bar was, as you would note, multi-purpose then because the, the haven had to serve uh, had to, had to work multiple channels in people's lives. So at various points, it was a church in the back theater hall. Um, at various points, there would be local like community theater mm -hmm. type shows. They called them Nelly dramas. These are like amateur uh, bar patrons putting on joke melodrama uh, stage performances. Uh, there would be early drag shows when drag was considered um, very unpopular, even among the gay community in the early 1970s. Um, drag occurred at the upstairs lounge. There would be sometimes wedding, gay weddings, or they would be called holy union conjugations at that point. Um, in the in the in this period of time when you know gay marriage was just considered a fairy tale. Um, but the, but um, and you would also see at the upstairs lounge something you wouldn't see at a lot of gay bars throughout New Orleans, which you would see um, an interracial gay crowd, um, black gay men and white gay men, um, not just uh, rubbing you know rubbing shoulders and other things, but also you would see them um, you would you would see them um, uh, pursuing each other in a friendly way, but also uh, also um, it romantically with a desire towards interracial gay dating, which was considered um, anathema. And a lot of the, a lot of the, especially the more upper class Bourbon Street gay bars, just something that you never saw. So it was a very special place where the come one, come all atmosphere um, morphed, adapted to always sort of welcome and bring in the people who found the haven. It's, you know, it strikes me too, though, that, that the reason that fire was as bad as it was is for the very reason that folks were closeted is because you got to go through this narrow stairwell. Mm -hmm. You got to go through. If this is a bar in today's society, most of those folks perhaps would have been able to get out. Oh, sure. I mean, like the upstairs lounge wouldn't have passed fire code. It, it hadn't. I mean, and this is typical of that era, too, when there was a whole a different relationship between city inspectors and police and business establishments. I mean, when the uh, the practice of rendering unto, unto Caesar or giving bribes was quite commonplace. But like so the the upstairs and fire inspectors hadn't visited the upstairs lounge establishment in more than two years. So the, the, the notion that the place would be up to code when this winding staircase had served as the lone entrance and exit for all of these bar patrons in a bar that was so cavernous you can cram it with about with more than 110 people at various points um it, it wouldn't exist in the present day context well let me jump before we run out of time sure. let's talk a little bit more about this you mentioned you know the, the corruption if you will Talk a little bit about the reaction of the New Orleans Fire Department and the police department to this crime. Sure. I mean, the fire department, uh, well, so uh, the fire was set in the front staircase with the aid of lighter fluid at uh, 9.53 p.m. on June 24, 1973. Three minutes later was first alarm where you would have you had the f examples of the first in individuals who spotted the fire locally and had called the local police station and, and the upstairs lounge is on the corner of Iberville and Charters. It's close to police uh, to sorry fire headquarters. So um, within two minutes you had the first fire um, you had the first uh, fire trucks and and 
firefighters on site um, attempting to, to fight this terrible blaze. And then within the next, I think, three or four minutes, you had more trucks. So the fire response was quite rapid. Um, the police response and the fire response is much more uh, is much more direct, right? They're trying to douse an inferno and they're trying to prevent the fluttering of materials that that's escaping the building from setting uh, from setting ablaze the entire French Quarter, which probably in the 70s was possible. And this town has had terrible fires. So they're trying to avoid a larger calamity. A they don't want to lose a block. They don't want to lose a neighborhood, etc. Um, so their their response is quite rapid, um, and they're they're working within the purview of their duties. Um, police are flummoxed about what to do about the upstairs lounge tragedy because um, very quickly they 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 can tell that the victims of this calamity, this potential crime that they're investigating from the first few minutes that they're at the site, um, involve members of a criminal class um, who New Orleans, most New Orleanians uh, don't really care much about and don't really want to hear much about. So the, the, your uh, police, even at, uh, at the scene, they're trying to interview witnesses. You can tell they had no training about how to work with the specific segment of what was then a very large subculture in New Orleans. Um, they didn't know how to trust witnesses. What's a reliable statement? And they also became confused about what crimes they were investigating. You could tell that um, at, at various points that they're, they're talking to someone and someone says, oh, this is my lover so-and-so. And they're thinking, you can tell the police Police is the detective is thinking, oh, this person has just confessed to a crime, right. uh, a separate crime from this. Should is, is this something I should be uh, putting a, putting a, some action and energy behind? So you can tell there isn't really a. Um, not only in terms of uh, the level of competence and the level of ability to investigate the, what is clearly an apparent arson, that they're unable to do so, but you can tell that they have um, a, a tremendous bias against this class themselves. So the, uh, the, the, the chief suspect of the blaze, who was a person who was violently ejected from the upstairs lounge minutes before the fire began, uh, his name was Roger Dale Nunez. He was ejected from the bar screaming, quote, I'm going to burn you all out. This right. is, that's what he threatened. Right. He, was, uh, he was on the street watching the fire from the outside and he was spotted by the upstairs lounge bartender buddy rasmussen and this is in uh, witness statements uh, from the fire marshal where he grabbed the potential arsonist he grabbed um he grabbed the uh, the suspect he dragged him in front of a police officer and he said this guy threatened to burn the bar down before the fire started and you could tell this it, it, based on the wit the witness description worked that the cop didn't know what to do he saw these two gay men having a struggle on the street while he's trying to manage this crowd and all this police officer could see was these two criminal fairies as the term would go in the 1970s having a scrape and he demanded that the upstairs lounge bartender release the suspect and, and, and the guy just drifted out into the masses and really and, and never never really was even questioned by police and the fire itself um, received uh, no no definitive answers and the victims in, in the, themselves in the end received no uh, method of justice whatsoever. Um, so the upstairs lounge to this day is still considered an unsolved crime. Yeah, but your book does a really good job of pointing out who the who the criminal was here that set the fire. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is the cops from reading your books actually crossed paths with him more than numerous once times and, and just never did anything. Mm -hmm. We're going to run out of time, but I really want to cover this last thing because sure. I think it's important for folks that may not understand that time period. And this was hard to read. Can you discuss briefly what happened with the attempts by family members to have church funerals for some of the victims? Sure. So many of the victims uh, were 
Roman Catholic or they were or in some small cases they were Protestant. New Orleans even then was a majority Roman Catholic city. And um, many of the victims of the upstairs lounge tragedy had experienced either difficulties receiving church funerals, roles in church burials, or it just wasn't even considered and brought up. So the gay activist, the national gay activists that came to New Orleans um, attempted to get the archdiocese uh, of New Orleans to issue a statement of sympathy for the dead and the archdiocese claimed to have no knowledge of this fire that occurred just blocks down the street from their major basilica. Um, and they um, they also refused uh, St. Louis uh, Cathedral as a site for an upstairs lounge public memorial for the 32 victims. Um, so uh, there, there was sort of a mass injustice in that sense in terms of all the victims being categorized together as something of uh, uh, something that was unholy or unworthy for of religious recognition and death. So you, there was that level of disrespect. Then there were individual victims. One, um, a local victim named Clarence McCloskey, who at one point had worked at the Circle Mart. Um, his family did step forward. His brother was a New Orleans firefighter, um, stepped forward and uh, bravely and um, and assisted with the positive ID of, of Clarence. And Clarence was, um, was uh, denied a local Catholic funeral at it was um, St. Rose de Lima uh, church in uh, in mid-city which was their their parish uh, the family parish since childhood and, and a Catholic memorial and he ended up receiving a non-religious funeral and then a non-religious burial he's in he's uh, has a crypt in Metairie currently and some of the families didn't claim the bodies of their there was hesitancy and report about uh, about hesitancy so in, in certain examples uh, families were uh, because of the associated stigma relating to homosexuality, some families, um, for shame of their uh, who their loved ones were in life, uh, hesitated or did not step forward. So uh, the MCC of New Orleans pastor, Bill Larson, uh, who perished uh, gr grievously and terribly in the upstairs lounge, uh, uh, bar window. I mean, is that his the image of his uh, death pose? He died in the windowsill and he burned to death there. It was witnessed by hundreds in the crowd and it was photographed on major newspapers. Uh, Bill Larson's uh, this religious man, uh, this queer religious man's mother back in Ohio uh, refused to accept his remains. Uh, for shame uh, of the lifestyle that he participated in. I, I hate to do this. I'd love to continue, but we are out of time. Mm -hmm. I'd like to thank our guest today, Robert Fiesler, for coming in. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been interviewing Robert Fiesler. My name is Mike Tusa. Until next time.